We are beginning a new series in the book of James today, so if you've got your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of James, you'll also find that printed uh, in your bulletins. Most of you, those of you who are regular here anyway, know that, that I'm a big fan of, of House, uh, the television show House for Better or for Worse. Um, and I was finally able this past week to, to watch the last two episodes of the series that's going off the air this year. Uh, and since it's ending, I guess I'm going to have to find sermon illustrations from a different television show now. <laughs> but, I, but I thought it was good to go for at least one more sermon. So, so, so here we go. Um, the last couple of episodes of House, if you haven't seen them, I'll kind of give you a, a brief uh, plot summary. As the series is winding down, we find out that Wilson, who's a doctor, who's Dr. House's best friend, has terminal cancer, uh, and he's got five months to live. And he's decided that instead of undergoing chemotherapy and radiation, all of these different things, which might extend his life up to a year, he said, you know what, I'd rather have five good months. And so I'm not going to seek any sort of treatment for the cancer. House is furious about this because Wilson is really the only person he has a real friendship with. Uh, And he's also furious with him because House has lived with chronic pain for his entire life. And and his thinking is, look, I've fought this. I've overcome this. Why can't you fight this too? Why do you have to give up so easily? Why do you have to quit on me? Well, in the next to the last episode, House finally comes around to to Wilson's way of seeing things. He's like, okay, this is your choice. This is your life. You you do what you think you need to do. And just as he comes to terms with that, we find out, and I won't go into all the details, we find out that House has violated the terms of his parole, and he's going to have to go back to prison for six months. His best friend has five months to live, And now he has to go to prison. He'll be in prison for the entirety of those five months. Now, even if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've never seen this show, just imagine that situation. Your best friend just told you you have five months, he has five months to live, but because of something you've done, uh, you're not going to be able to spend uh, that remaining part of his life with him. What do you do? How do you react to that? How do you, how do you handle that? Uh, we are starting a new series in the book of James today, and, and I want to give you a little bit of background before we jump into this. Uh, James is written by, any guesses? James Good. Um, y'all are smart group. James is written by, by, by a man named James, who is most likely uh, James, the brother of Jesus, who was a leader in the early church. Uh, verse 1 is going to tell us, that the original readers, the people he first wrote this to, are the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Which, what that probably means is that James is writing to uh, Jewish converts to Christianity who are living outside of Israel, kind of been scattered all over the place. Uh, as we <coughs> read the letter, you'll pick up that they're undergoing trials of various sorts. One of them was that they were, were many of them were living in poverty and were being oppressed uh, because of that. And so, He writes about enduring trials, living through trials. But he's also concerned, and perhaps he's more concerned, that uh, believers in Jesus Christ live lives of spiritual integrity. That our lives are demonstrated by spiritual wholeness. That that, uh, the way we live matches up with what we say we believe. Uh, So with that in mind, 
Um, there, there's something I want you to think about as we look at this today. Uh, and, and honestly, I could probably say this every week, but I just I want you to think about this as we enter into this study of the book of James. The way that all of us think about life, the way that we think about handling trials, uh, the way we think about everything, what's right, what the good life is, what's important, the way we think about everything is influenced and shaped uh, by the families we grew up in, by our friends, by our schools, uh, by the television shows we watch, by the music we listen to. All of this has a, a shaping influence on our lives. Uh, whether you're watching uh, Andy Griffith or Modern Family or The Walking Dead or Andy Griffith meets The Walking Dead, which would kind of be fun. You know, how does, how does he handle zombies without a gun? And, right, some of y'all don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, <laughs> communicate important life lessons to Opie in the Mist. Um, anyway, the things that we watch, listen to, they shape us. They shape the way we think about things. Now, <clears throat> I'm not saying all these these. Uh, voices are bad. I'm not saying Andy Good, Walking Dead, bad. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am saying that everything that we receive, that we get input from, um, has an effect on us. It's telling us a story, if you will. Here's how you can find happiness. Um, here's how you should think about marriage and sexuality. Here's what cool looks like. Here's how you think about being successful. Here's how you think about the good life. Here's how you define the good life. Here's how you think about how to handle trials and difficulties. And we're shaped by all of that in good and bad ways. Uh, and then today, we're going to come to the scriptures. We're going to come to the Bible. Specifically, we're going to come to the book of James. Uh, and this is another story, another voice. But it claims to be much more than just another story, another voice. It claims to be the very Word of God. And if it is that Word of God, then it has the right to correct the input that we're receiving from all the other voices in our lives. It has the right to correct both what we receive from our family, from our friends, uh, from the television shows we watch, from all the different inputs. It has the, inputs, it has the right to correct that because it is the very Word of God. And so today, as we look at this first section of James, it's talking about trials, right? But, but let's be honest, all of life is just kind of a series of trials. And we, I think you figure that out as you grow up, as you get older, that it's one thing after the next. And so what I want you to think about is, how would culture tell me to handle trials, to think about trials in life? And then, what's James really saying here? And then ask yourself, which voice am I actually listening to? All right, so... That's well, a long introduction, but <clears throat> James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, and this is God's Word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. <clears throat> so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, would you pray with me? God, is this is your word, and um, we pray that you would work through it. Uh, that by your word, by your spirit, you would, you would speak through me. Uh, and that you would speak into our hearts and uh, cause us to see how you would have us to handle trials, how you would have us to handle uh, life in a way that's glorifying to you and good for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so <clears throat> here's what I'm going to do. I want to lay out for us a, a countercultural way, counter-cultural way of thinking about life and thinking about trials. And what I want to ask first is, from the text, is what do you do when you're faced with trials? What do you do when you're faced with trials? What does verse 2 tell us? We just read it. He says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, you may read that and go, okay, that's ridiculous. Um, well, let's go home and watch the game. What time do the Panthers come on? I mean, this, I, I'm not doing this. Uh, but before you, before you do that, um, let me point out a couple of things, realize a couple of things. James is not saying here, when you find out you have a life-threatening illness, call all the neighbors and throw a block party and rejoice. But that's what you should do when you have a trial. Let's get everybody together and celebrate. Uh, the trials are hard. And life throws us some curveballs. It can bring us through some very dark uh, and dreary places. And the Bible doesn't try to sugarcoat that. Uh, Jesus, uh, on the cross, we hear him saying, Oh, how happy I am. No, he doesn't say that. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, trials bring us to very dark places. If you read the book of Psalms, the Psalms really are... Uh, the inspired version of the blues. You know, you feel like uh, Muddy Waters and B.B. King should be playing as you read the Psalms because they really are uh, the blues in many ways. There are people going through different uh, difficult times in life. So the Bible is not saying when you face trials, you can't be sad, you can't be uh, weary, you can't be frustrated, you can't cry. It's not saying any of those things. But it is saying if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have something uh, that, that sounds this, this deep bass note of joy uh, in your heart, even in the midst of very dark times. Or if you think about it like this, there's this, there's this background music to your life uh, that, that you can hear, even in the midst of heartache, that gives you a reason to rejoice. And you should rejoice because of that. Now, talk about something countercultural, all right, just to start off with. When you face trials, rejoice. Now, think about the way we, we tend to want to handle trials. Uh, we, we deny that we're going through a bad time. We don't want to own up to that. We, we suppress it. We, we escape, try to escape it. 
uh, or we just we suck it up and we overcome it because that's what we do. We're overcomers and we're going to take care of it. Now, this is a completely alien way of thinking about trials. But, but think about this. Even if, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you ought, to, you ought to hear this. And while it may sound crazy to you, you ought to hear this and it ought to give you a ray of hope. The trials don't have to have the last word in your life. The trials don't have to define you. Now, trials don't have to consume you. They don't have to have the final say on your or about your emotional state. But you can actually rejoice in the midst of them. Now, how can you do that? How can you rejoice in the midst of difficulty? Well, <clears throat> what does our text say? Well, it tells us, Verse 3, to remember what God's doing. Look at verse 3 and 4. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How do I rejoice in the midst of trials, in the midst of my difficulties? I rejoice by remembering that God has a different goal in mind for my life than I do. In fact, by remembering that God has a better goal in mind for my life than I do. You know, I, I just want as much happiness as I can get. And, and as often as I can have it, I, I would like to be happy. God is interested in who I'm becoming. In who you are becoming. He's interested in your becoming whole and complete. He's interested in your holiness. He's interested in your eternal joy even. He's interested in your faithfulness. And the way these things become a reality in our lives is through trials. One, one writer put it like this, like a muscle that becomes strong when it faces resistance, Christians learn to remain faithful to God over the long haul when they face difficulty. Testing produces perseverance. And you can think about that in, in everyday life. Uh, some of you know the story of uh, Oscar uh, what's his name? Pretorius? Is that close? Nobody knows. Uh, he's, he's the guy who was the double amputee blade runner uh, who made it to the Olympics. Okay, now, how did he get to the place where he could run, where he could sprint in the Olympics with, with no legs, basically? Uh, there was a lot of perseverance. There was a lot of training involved to get him to that point. If you want to set out and you want to run a marathon, uh, you just don't suddenly have the ability to do that because... I think I'd like to run a marathon. Okay, I'll go do that. Now, there are trials. There's training involved. You develop perseverance as you exercise, as your physical muscles are exercised and strengthened. Uh, in the same way, the exercise of our faith uh, strengthens our spiritual muscles. It, it produces endurance. It produces steadfastness. The ability to walk with God uh, day in and day out, being made by God into the men and women He would have us to be. But that doesn't happen if we don't respond to the trials that God brings us in our lives. If we don't respond to them in faith. In faith that God, even though I can't understand it, He is at work in my life in the midst of this. If we don't persevere through the trials, if we don't, as the text says, allow steadfastness to have its full effect... Uh, as a friend of mine said one time, trials can either make you bitter or they can make you beautiful. And they only make you beautiful as you respond in faith 
to the work of the Creator in your life? What effect are your trials having on you? Are they making you bitter? Are they making you beautiful? You know, the, we mentioned before the, the readers of the original readers of this letter were largely poor. They didn't have enough money. You may relate to that. Uh, they were uh, away from home. They were dispersed. They were in an uncomfortable situation. Anybody ever relate to that? Can you identify with that? What do we want to do with that? We want to escape those situations. We don't want to be poor. We don't want to be uncomfortable. But if you're in my life, is, our entire life is a flight, an attempt to escape uncomfortable situations, then we're missing out on the very place that God delights to work in the life of His people. And it's very likely, if that's what your life is like, constantly trying to escape uncomfortable situations, then God is going to seem very distant to you. The more you and I uh, self-protect, the more we try to stay out of uncomfortable faith-testing situations, the less we need God. And is it any wonder, or the less we think we need God, is it any wonder that He seems distant to us? James tells us, when you face trials... Rejoice. Well, how do you do that? You remember what God is doing through the trials in your life. And you persevere through the trials. Well, great. Okay, i got to be happy and persevere. How do I do that? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. James says, you're in these trials, you should rejoice, you need to persevere, that looks very daunting, how do I do that, what should I do? I ask for help. I ask for help. Uh, In those last two episodes of House, uh, House is is faced with this trial, right? His His best friend is dying. How does he handle it? Well, uh, denial... And then there's anger. Uh, When Wilson refuses to get treatment, he tries to manipulate him and control him so that he will get treatment. Uh, Then when he comes to terms with the fact that that this is the way it's going to be, but now he's he's, he's looking at at jail time, he tries to, to fix and control that situation. And when that doesn't work, he tries to escape the situation by shooting up with heroin. And when that doesn't work, and he finds himself lying in a burning building with a dead guy next to him. So you want to go watch this now. When he's, he's lying in a burning building with a dead guy next to him, he's faced with the reality of, or the choice of, do I really want to try to escape or is life so bad that I just want to lie here in this building and burn up and die? Is it, is it really worth it trying to, to get out? But he never asked for help. Crazy TV characters. It's not just TV character, is it? Characters, is it? Uh, think about the way you've handled or are handling a difficulty, a trial. Denial, anger, manipulation, trying to control it, trying to fix it, 
trying to escape it? You know, how are you trying to escape your trials right now? What's your, what's your outlet maybe that nobody knows about? Maybe you've even contemplated ending it. It's just, it's just not worth it. This is just too hard. Have you asked for help? Have you asked for help? If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Ask for help. You know, I think that's one of the biggest barriers that a lot of us have to overcome, actually. Because to ask for help, you have to admit weakness. And weakness is not, um, weakness is frowned upon in our culture. I'll just put it like that. We, we are supposed to be strong. You have to admit that your family and your education that you paid all this money for uh, and your resourcefulness and your ability to get it done aren't enough. They're not enough. You have to admit weakness. And you have to ask for help. In particular, you have to ask God for help, to ask God for wisdom. And often, the way He helps us is by sending help through other people. And then, what are you stuck with? You have to receive help from other people. And we're pretty self-reliant. We don't, we don't want to do that. Uh, specifically, though, James says, ask God for what? Ask God for wisdom. How do, I, how do I rejoice in the midst of this, God? What does that look like? How do I persevere in the midst of this? How do I handle this situation? What do I do? James tells us to cry out to God, and through His Word and through His people, He will give you wisdom to face the trial that you're facing. He'll give you help. You know, a lot of us during trials, trials make us very anxious, right? Uh, and, and that anxiety can just kind of build on itself and you just turn in on yourself and withdraw uh, more and more from the people around you. Can I just suggest um, that you use that anxiety in a more constructive way, that you use that anxiety instead of trying to deny that it's there, actually use that anxiety to lead you to God, to lead you to ask for help, to lead you to pray. You know, when you, when you wake up at 3 in the morning in, the, in a cold sweat, what do you do then? What do you do then? Pray. Ask for help. Ask for wisdom. And James says that God will, will generously give us wisdom without reproach, without finding fault. He won't say to you, you should have figured this out a long time ago, dummy. Why do you keep asking me this? You've messed up. I've helped you out on this before. I'm, I'm done. I'm not helping you anymore. You've used up your God helps, uh, your lifelines. Uh, he doesn't say that. Uh, James says God gives generously to all without reproach. He'll give you wisdom. He'll give you strength. He'll give you help. That's what the text says. Now, uh, and I need to say this because it, it, it is in the text. Who does God give wisdom too. He says he gives it to the one who asks in faith without doubting. And, and we can get kind of hung up on that. If you've read this text before, you're like, oh, I'm never getting any help because I've always got all these doubts. Um, you need to be careful because this is our, let me say it this way. There's not a person here who doesn't struggle with doubts 
of one type or the other from, from time to time in the Christian life. That's just, this is part of the Christian walk. John the Baptist faced doubts. Do you remember this? Do you remember him sending his disciples to see Jesus? And he, they, sent, they asked him, are you really the one to come or do we need to be looking for somebody else? Because I don't get it right now. I don't understand what's going on. And so this is not just ordinary, everyday doubt that we all struggle with that James is talking about here. Uh, this is a picture of this strong kind of doubting, one guy put it this way, a strong kind of doubting that brings about wavering and inconsistency toward God. Uh, think about Romans chapter 4. Romans tells us that Abraham, uh, about Abraham, that no distress made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he drew, grew strong in his faith, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, go back and read Genesis. There are moments when Abraham wasn't so sure about things. So Paul and James are not pointing us to this perfect, uh, question-free Christian existence. And if you get to that perfect plane, then God will say, okay, that's true faith, and he'll help you out. Uh, Rather... He's saying, look, is there a consistent pattern in your life, as there was in the life of Abraham, is there a consistent pattern in your life of turning to God and relying on God, even taking your doubts to God instead of being swallowed by your doubts? Now, think about it this way. Let's say you're in a pool and you're not a very good swimmer and, and you're struggling to stay up. And there are two people offering their hands to help you. What's going to happen to you if you're constantly going, I think I'm going to, oh, that guy looks a little bit, he probably, and then you, you go over here. And you're like, well, what, maybe I should have, eventually you're going to wear yourself out. You're going to be tossed back and forth and, and you're going to drown because you're not grabbing hold in faith. James is saying, when you're in trouble, when you need help, when you need wisdom, Grab the hand of the one who has wisdom and hang on to that hand and believe that he is going to give you help, that he is going to give you wisdom. That's what faith looks like. How do I rejoice? I ask God for wisdom. How do I persevere? I ask God for wisdom to handle the trial that he's bringing me through. So, ask for help. And then secondly here, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Uh, part of the struggle that, that House faced as he was laying on that burn, burning floor is he didn't really know who he was. Uh, he didn't know whether life or death would be better. Because he saw nothing but emptiness in life, but he saw nothing but emptiness in death either and he is kind of trapped and in his worldview he was nothing but a bag of chemicals anyway and so he's just torn like which which option do I choose he wasn't sure of who he was and so he wasn't able to face the trial now you need to remember again that that part of the trial for many of the people reading this was their poverty and as a result they were being oppressed by those with money uh, and that's a very hard place to be. So, so listen to what James says then. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich 
in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Let the lowly brother boast in his humiliation. Excuse me, in his exaltation. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What's James saying? What's exalted about the position of the lowly brother? Uh, He's saying, look, your circumstances may be bad, and you may be in a very lowly position in the world's eyes, but don't let circumstances define who you are. Don't let circumstances define who you are. You know, that's a message you hear preached to people with uh, chronic illnesses sometimes. Don't let your illness define who you are. Um, Oscar Pistorius again, <clears throat> the double-bladed anti-tee runner in the Olympics. Um, he was allowed to compete in the Olympics this year, but <clears throat> you may not know, or you probably have heard this, uh, that that was quite a struggle for him to actually be allowed to compete in the Olympics. There are a lot of people that objected to his being allowed to compete because they said, look, he's got these carbon fiber blades and we just have legs. Um, that's an that's a unfair advantage for him. And so there were people who didn't want Oscar in the race because they th- felt he had they felt he had an unfair advantage. Well, eventually he was allowed to run and compete. And he didn't make the finals, but he did fairly well. And some of the riders covering him said, you know, he always had such a good attitude about this. Um, he was, it, it seemed like he, it wasn't about winning for him. He was just happy to be able to be there. He was just glad to be able to compete and, and to run in the Olympics. But one month after the Olympics, every time they have the Olympics, they have the Paralympics uh, for, for disabled people. And in 2008, uh, Oscar competed in the Paralympics, and he won the 100 meters and the 200 meters and the 400 meters in the Paralympic Games in 2008 in Beijing. Well, this year, he lost the 200 meters in the Paralympics game. The Paralympics games. And here's how ESPN.com described his loss. The Blade Runner had never been beaten over 200 meters until Brazilian sprinter Alan Oliveira came storming down the home straight to win by seven hundredths of a second and dethroned the icon of the Paralympics. Pistorius later accused Oliveira of bending the rules. Having won his own legal battle to compete wearing carbon fiber blades alongside able-bodied rivals, Pistorius suggested that Oliveira ran with longer prosthetics than should be allowed. Oliveira won in 21.45 seconds after overtaking Pistorius at the line at Olympic Stadium in front of a capacity 80,000 strong crowd. This is what he said. Not taking away from Allen's performance, he's a great athlete, but these guys are a lot taller and you can't compete with the stride length, Pistorius said in a broadcast interview. You saw how far he came back. We weren't racing a fair race. I gave it my best. The IPC have their regulations. The regulations allow that athletes can make themselves unbelievably high. We've tried to address the issue with them in the weeks up to this, and it's just been falling on deaf ears. 
For Pistorius, it is ridiculous that Oliviera could win after being 8 meters adrift at the 100 meter mark. And then he says this, He's never run a 21 second race, and I don't think he's a 21 second athlete. I've never lost a 200 meter race in my career. Now think about that for a minute. He wasn't defined by his disability. He didn't allow his, his disability to define him and, and, and props to him for that. But what defines him now? What's his identity now? It's winning. It's winning. Who I am is, I've never lost, you just lost one, dude. I've never lost a 200 meter race in my career. He's defined by winning. He's got to win. And James was telling the poor people, don't be defined by winning. Don't be defined by thinking you've got to be rich. But instead, find your identity. Boast in your exaltation. What's that mean? For a poor person to boast in their exaltation. Well, listen to Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Don't let your poverty or your wealth, don't let your sickness or your health define you. Don't let your circumstances define you. Don't let what other people think about you define you. But be defined by your relationship with God. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then the God of the universe is now your Father and you should be defined by that fact that you know God. That you know the love of the Father. And finding your identity in that will allow you to rejoice even in the midst of trials. Even in the midst of difficulties. Because you're not defined by what the trial might take away from you. You're defined by who you are in Christ. You're defined by your relationship with God. And James flips this around. He talks about the poor and then he talks about the rich. And he basically says to them, don't be defined by your riches. Don't trust in your riches in this life to insulate you from trials or to to help you escape from trials. Because it's all going to fade away. It's all going to go away. Trust me. Don't define yourself by what you have. Don't define yourself by what you don't have. Define yourself by who you know. Define yourself, uh, whether you're rich or poor, by the one that you belong to. Well, ask for help. Remember who you are. And then the last thing here, remember where you're going. In verse 12, as he ties this whole section together, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. When James readers heard this term crown of life, uh, they probably weren't thinking about a king's crown. They were probably thinking about a wreath that someone who won an athletic event would receive. right? Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to gain a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 
Uh, last week, uh, somebody on Facebook mentioned how good the men's final in the U.S. Open, how good the men's U.S. Open tennis final was. Um, and <clears throat> I used to be a big tennis fan back in the Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and Andre Agassi days, but honestly, I don't keep up with it that much. But I've been sort of intrigued uh, by Andy Murray, uh, and and Andy Murray was 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 in this final, and you know he's he's um, received attention because he's playing to become the, the first man from Great Britain to win a major tennis championship since, like, I don't know, Winston Churchill or somebody. Um, I don't know British tennis players. Um, since, like, 1930, nobody from Great Britain has, has, has won a major U.S. Open or Wimbledon or anything like that. So it would be a big deal if Andy won one. His record in majors going into the U.S. Open final was 0-4. So he'd been there four times in various major championships, and four times he'd lost. And as I turned the television on, he was just going up two sets to none. And so it looked like, well, finally, he's finally going to win one. This is fun. I'll watch this. And then slowly it started to slip away from him. And he lost two sets in a row. And now it's tied two sets each, and it looks like his game is completely unraveled, and, and honestly, I just turned it off at that point. I said, I don't want to see this guy lose again. Uh, I don't want to see him go 0-5, but it turns out he won. He won. Now, how did he do that? How do you overcome losing four times before? How do you overcome blowing a, a two sets to none lead, and suddenly your game is completely falling apart? How do you overcome all of that? Well, I imagine he had developed a little bit of steadfastness through the trials of life, through losing in life. I, I joked about Winston Churchill earlier. Uh, he lost a lot. He made a lot of bad choices before he finally won. And it's through these difficulties that we develop steadfastness through these trials of life. Even our failures prepare us and create steadfastness in us. But don't you know that what also kept him going was the thought of finally breaking through, of finally winning, of finally getting that crown. He could, he could taste victory. He could taste glory. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're struggling with trials, you're struggling with life, let me encourage you to rejoice. God is at work in your life. Remember what God is doing. Ask for His help. Ask for His wisdom. Remember who you are. You're not defined by what your trials may take away from you. You are defined by your relationship with God. You know the Father. And then look ahead to the finish line. Look ahead to the finish line. And rejoice in the fact that when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love Him. Let's pray. Father, it is a, it's always, it's not easy to talk about trials, but it's easier to talk about them than it is to actually live through them and to do what you say here, to rejoice in them. And so we do ask for wisdom, and we do ask for help. 
And we do ask you to remind us what you are doing in us through these trials. We do ask you to remember that our trials, help us remember that our trials don't define us. And we do ask you to help us to to look at what lies ahead, that glory lies ahead. Uh, Keep us mindful of that, Lord. Give us help. Give us strength. Keep our eyes upon you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.